If you would, open up your Bibles with me. Let's come again to the book of Romans and chapter 9. The book of Romans and chapter 9. As you find your way there, let me begin, as I love to do, with a question. Have you ever known the frustration or the disappointment of someone who did not keep their word to you? Have you ever known what it is like to be the recipient of a broken promise? It can be very painful. A father promises his child that he will make it to the baseball game to watch him play, and then dad doesn't show up. A groom vows before God to his bride that he will be faithful to her till death do they part. And he doesn't keep his promise. In a recent political debate, the issue of social security was brought up. And the argument was made that social security is a broken promise to younger voters and to younger workers. And that was sad because, at least at this moment, the program is fiscally unsustainable And unless changes are made, the money that younger workers are putting into Social Security now will not be there to support them when they reach retirement age. And if younger folks are counting on that money to keep them afloat when they're older, they may find themselves in a very dire situation. And so the candidate was arguing Social Security is a broken promise. Consider something more dreadful than those examples of a broken promise. Imagine that you come to the day of judgment and that you stand before the great and holy judge, Jesus Christ. And the nations are gathered together and before all the nations, your sins are revealed. And every evil thought you've ever had is made known. And every vile word you've ever spoken is made known. Every awful deed you've ever committed is exposed before the eyes of all. And in that courtroom setting, God's justice demands that you be eternally condemned. And you've got Satan and his minions in the corner, and they are crying out for you to be cast into utter torment. And it would appear that you are headed for hell. And then you speak. And you cry out, I am a Christian. I have placed my trust in you, O Lord Jesus. Your gospel tells me that because of your life, your death, your resurrection, there is forgiveness for sinners like me. You say before the judge, you say before Satan and his minions, you say before the nations, hell cannot have me. My sins have already been paid for on the cross. You say, O righteous Jesus, I am ready for heaven because I have trusted in your word. And then to your surprise and to your horror, Jesus says, oh, don't you know, I do not keep my word. 
And in that moment, all of your confidence and all of your hope comes crashing to the ground. And fear grips you. And hell is opened up before you. It is almost blasphemy for me to even suggest that you imagine that such a thing could happen. Especially after Romans chapter 8. Especially after we have such strong promises that our salvation in Christ is indestructible. But friends, this is the issue of Romans chapter 9. Because it does not matter how great Romans chapter 8 is if God's word cannot be trusted. We're wasting our time here this morning. And we need to call in our missionaries from the field. And we need to close the door of every church if God's word cannot be trusted. Now, Herman, we have no hope if God doesn't keep his word. Here is the question of questions. Can we trust what God has said? And that's what our passage is about. So let's read Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 13. So Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, down to verse 13. This is the very word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Why might people think that the word of God cannot be trusted. It was because God promised an eternal kingdom with amazing blessings to Israel. And their Messiah had come, Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom had come. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus said. 
And instead of believing on Christ, and instead of becoming citizens of that kingdom, and instead of receiving all of the benefits that God had promised, the Israelites are rejecting Christ. In Paul's day, and in our day, the vast majority of Jews do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To help us see how big an issue this is, listen to the great promise from Jeremiah 31 to the people of Israel. Here is the promise that was made from God. This is the word of God that some people in Rome think has been broken. This is the promise they think God hasn't kept. Listen to it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So here it is. Here is the promise. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise. Friends, when you look at the Jewish people in Paul's day and in our day, What's happened to that promise? He made a promise of a new covenant with Israel. And in this covenant, God promised he would put his law inside the heart of every single Israelite so that they would obey him from the heart and would not live in sin. God promised that he would put his spirit inside every single one of them. There would need to be no evangelism among them. Because you would have to say, know the Lord. Because every member of the house of Israel would know the Lord. He will be their God. They, his people. Every one of their sins forgiven. This was the great promise. The promise of a holy Israel. The promise of a saved Israel. And now Jesus has come. It's through his blood that the new covenant is established. It's through Jesus that hearts are changed so that we want to obey God. It's through Jesus that the Spirit comes to live in us. It's through Jesus that our sins are forgiven. Christ has come. Paul says he's God over all. He's not just the Messiah. He's God himself. Jesus is blessed forever, Paul says. The very Son of God, the the cup into whom the Father has poured his boundless love Jesus came as a Jew. He came as an Israelite. And they are refusing him. The Israelites in Paul's day and our day, by and large, do not know the Lord. They do not have the Holy Spirit. God is not their God and they are not his people. Their hearts have not been changed Their spirit is not living inside of them. They are not being brought to fear God and obey God. And meanwhile, can you believe this? The 
pagans are being saved. Paul goes from city to city and he goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews and they drive him out of the synagogue. He goes to the, uh, the town center, preaches to the pagans, and they believe. This really seems like God's word is wrong. It really seems like God got it wrong. He said that Israel would be saved. And it's the Gentiles who are being saved. Mount Hermon, Romans 9 matters to you. I talked to someone this week who said that years ago she was part of a church where the preacher was preaching through the book of Romans. And she said he preached through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, verse by verse. He got to Romans 9 and he said to the church, Romans 9, 10, and 11 isn't about us. It's about the Jews. We're going to pick up in Romans 12. And he just skipped Romans 9 through 11. He said it's not for us. Now, Herman, any time any preacher would say that any part of the word of God is not for you, beware. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That there is not any part of Scripture that is not profitable for you. Romans 9 is for us. We need to know that we can trust our God. And that means we need an answer to the glaring problem of him saying, the Jews will be holy and saved, and the Jews aren't holy and saved. So what's Paul's answer? Here's how he answers the question. Verse 6. Everybody see it? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Really, Paul? (laughs) God promised to save Israel and forgive their sins. Israel remains hard-hearted and unforgiven. And you're saying that God's word has not failed. Explain it, Paul. How are you going to explain this? He goes on. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And that's his explanation. Everything else that we're going to see over the next several verses, over the next couple of weeks, is going to be backing up this shocking and audacious statement. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God's word has not failed. God's word has kept his promises. God made his promises to Israel. He's keeping his promises to Israel. The problem is you don't understand who Israel is. You're thinking of Israel as all those people who are ethnic Jews. But not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So, Paul is saying we have to make a distinction between two different kinds of Israelites. There are the Israelites who are descended from Israel. Remember, Israel is Jacob. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel? Okay. So, Israel is Jacob. And all those who are descended from Jacob are ethnically, biologically, physically Israel. They are biological Israelites. Paul says not all of those biological Israelites are the real Israel. Not every one of those physical Israelites is the Israel that God made his promises to. 
He says it again in a different way in verse 7. So does everybody see verse 7? Look at verse 7. This is, church, this is one of those texts you just got to look at the Bible and follow and turn your mind on because Paul's making arguments here. Verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Right? So there's two kinds of children of Abraham. There are those children of Abraham who are his children because they're his offspring. They are biologically Abraham's descendants. They are biological children of Abraham. Paul says being biological children of Abraham doesn't necessarily mean you're a real child of Abraham. In other words, there is a kind of Israelite and there is a kind of offspring of Abraham to whom God has made his promises and to whom God is keeping every single one of them. But having Abraham's blood or Jacob's blood running through your veins does not automatically make you one of those people. Perhaps a better way to speak of this is to use the terms ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Ethnic Israel refers to those who are biologically descendants of Abraham and Jacob. Spiritual Israel refers to all those whom God has given his promises and is keeping every one of those promises. Now this isn't the first time Paul spoke this way. Back in Romans 2.28, I know it was a long time ago for us, but in Romans 2.28 Paul said, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly nor is circumcision outward and physical. So Paul has already taught that there is, there is yes, a physical kind of Jew, but not, not the true Jews. The true Jews are not people who are merely Jews outwardly, not merely circumcision of the flesh. There's something different about them, something spiritual. Now, when we hear Paul teaching this, that there's an ethnic Israel and there's a spiritual Israel, we might respond by saying, Paul, this sounds really new. This sounds strange. Where's your evidence for this? Where are you getting this idea that not all Israel is Israel? Paul could respond, by the way, by pointing us to Jesus, because Jesus spoke this way first. One of the most startling passages in all of the Gospels comes in John chapter 8 in a confrontation that Jesus has with some of his fellow Jews. You want to know why the Jews hated Jesus? Why the Pharisees wanted to stone him? Listen to what Jesus said that stunned them. The Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham's did, that Abraham did but now you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. 
He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The Jews said, Jesus, we are children of Abraham. More than that, we are children of God. Jesus says, it's by the way you act that you show who your father is. You are of your father, the devil, because he is the father of lies, and you are speaking lies and believing lies. So even before Paul, Jesus was teaching that having Abraham's blood in your veins didn't make you a true Israelite. And Paul could have pointed there, but he pointed somewhere different. He goes back to the very beginning of Israel, to Abraham himself. Look at what Paul says again in verse 7. Look at verse 7. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Paul offers up as his evidence a quote from the Old Testament. He quotes a verse. He's giving a, a proof text to support his point that not all children of Abraham are the real children of Abraham. The verse he quotes is Genesis 21, verse 12. What does it mean? Well, remember, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. Isaac was not Abraham's first son. Before there was Isaac, there was Ishmael. Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham. Ishmael was offspring of Abraham. All of Ishmael's children, all of Ishmael's grandchildren are descendants of Abraham. But God says that when it comes to his promises, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, some descendants of Abraham count, some descendants of Abraham do not count when it comes to the promises of God. Look at verse 8. Paul tells us what this means. He says this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. So Paul has put his finger on something here. If biological connection is not the standard of what makes someone a true child of Abraham, what is the standard? What makes someone a true Jew, a true Israelite, a true child of Abraham with all of the promises of Jeremiah 31 of forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit and God is our God? How do we become a true child? Paul says, well, what was the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? It wasn't that they were born from a different father, no. Here was the crucial difference. Isaac was the promised child. Both were biological children. But Isaac was the child promised by God. Look at verse 9. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And so Paul gives us another Old Testament quotation. This time from Genesis 18. You remember this story, don't you? God had come to Abraham and he said to Abraham, look up at the sky. Count the stars if you can count them. And then God said to Abraham, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham was old. And his wife Sarah was old. 
She was past childbearing years. They had no children at this point. How could this great promise of descendants more numerous than the stars come true? Sarah is barren. And rather than trusting the God who can do the impossible, Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. And Sarah gave her handmaiden, Hagar, to Abraham. And Abraham slept with Hagar, and Hagar bore a son, Ishmael. And then Abraham pleaded with God that God might now use Ishmael to fulfill his purposes. God, remember those promises you gave to me about how through my descendants you're going to bless the world, how my descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Here's Ishmael, my son through Hagar. Bless him. Make it true. Genesis 17, 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That's not how God works. When he creates covenant children, he creates them miraculously. True children of God are not created in man-made ways. They are created in a supernatural way. Here is the difference between Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was a child according to the flesh. He was born of human means. Isaac was a child of the promise. He was born of supernatural means. He was a miracle child. Paul is saying here's the difference between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Ethnic Israelites come about through human reproduction, through childbearing, through physical means. Spiritual Israelites come about through a miracle. I and I alone create spiritual Israel. To become a true Israelite, to become a true child of God, a true recipient of God's promises, there must be a supernatural work of the hand of God. Only those who have been born anew by the power of God's Spirit are truly His. This is what Paul meant in Romans 2. When he said that a Jew must be one inwardly and that circumcision is a matter of the heart. Now, Herman, here's the question that matters above all. It isn't what family are you from? It isn't do you have Abraham's blood running through your veins? If that was the question, we're in trouble, aren't we, church? Not many ethnic Jews in this room. But that's not the question. The question is this, has God worked a miracle in you? Are you a supernatural child of God? Are you a new creation? Make sure you hear this clearly. You cannot make yourself a child of God. Human means do not work. Children of God are created through a miracle. Only God can make someone a true Israelite, a true Jew, a true believer, a true recipient of his promises. Only God can make it happen. And so you see where this is going. This argument that Paul is making can only lead to one conclusion. It's Romans 9.16, if you want to see it, where we're headed. Romans 9.16. Speaking of salvation, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
This argument that Paul is making, it's leading us to Romans 9, verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. In other words, only God can make someone a true Jew, a Christian. And he does so sovereignly. And he does so according to his choice and his purpose. Okay, we're going to stop there. What are four implications of what we've seen? So I'm going to give you four implications of this meaty, heady doctrine that Paul is giving us. Number one, first note that the most important thing about us is not our family connections, but whether or not we've been born again. What is most important about us is not our family connections, but whether or not we've been born again. That is good news for some of you in this room. Because if salvation for you depended on your bloodline or your biology or the family you grew up in, you'd be in a mess. Maybe you grew up in a very non-Christian home with unbelieving parents, even unbelieving grandparents. And, and if salvation depended on your connection to godly people, you're in a mess. Or if salvation depended on you being connected to Abraham biologically, we'd be in a mess. In the sight of God, that is not what ultimately matters most. What matters most is this. Have you been made new? This truth may come as bad news to some people. Because it could be that there are some folks in this room who are depending on their family connections to get them to heaven. You probably wouldn't say this, but maybe you grew up in a devout Christian family. Maybe you grew up in one of those families that was in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. You cannot remember a time when you were not in the church. Your parents were Christians. Your grandparents were Christians. Your great-grandparents were Christians. And so you just have this idea in your head, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm included. Of course God would never cast me away. Look at my family. But friends, one lesson for us from this passage is that on the day of judgment, you do not want to stand before God and plead your grandmother's faith. Your blood connections, your relationship to godly parents and grandparents, these will not save you. Only one thing matters, and it's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in the middle of the night in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Kids in this room, the fact that you're growing up in church, the fact that your parents are Christians does not make you a Christian. You must come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Children in this room, have you started to follow Christ for yourself? Are you praying to Christ for yourself? Are you trusting Christ for yourself? Is there love for Jesus beating in your chest? It doesn't matter whether it's beating in your mom's chest or your dad's chest. Do you love Christ? Is he your Savior? Number two, implication. Note the importance of knowing your Old Testament 
in order to understand the New Testament. Note the importance of knowing your Old Testament in order to to understand the New Testament. Did you see that in this passage? Paul doesn't rehash the story of Abraham and Sarah for you. He doesn't rehash the story of Ishmael and Isaac. He assumes you know it. He quotes verses and assumes that you know the story around those verses. And if you don't know the story around those verses, Romans 9 will make no sense to you. And Paul isn't writing to a group of professional theologians. He's not writing to religious scholars. Paul is writing this letter to everyday Christians in Rome. Many of these people were likely servants or slaves. But he expected them to know their Old Testament. Why did he expect even servants and slaves to know their Old Testament? Because the scriptures are the very word of God, more precious than gold. In our day, we often find Christians disregarding the Old Testament. They say, we're New Testament people. Those Old Testament days are gone. But if you do not know your Old Testament, you will make mush of chapters like Romans 9 in the New Testament. You cannot be a faithful New Testament Christian if you are not familiar with Old Testament teaching. Let us not neglect, church, to read the Old Testament, to study it, and to learn from it. The Old Testament has better stories than NCIS, better battles than those found on a football field, better instruction than you will find in any self-help manual, better poetry than you will find in Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson. The Old Testament is a treasure chest of goodness that helps you grow stronger and wiser and more joyful in Christ. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Read your Old Testament so that you can better understand the new. Number three, third implication. Note that no ethnic Jew is a child of God just because they're an ethnic Jew. That is very controversial in our day, is it not? This is a point where many of our fellow Christians are misguided Because there are some who seem to believe that the Jews, unlike everyone else, get a free pass to heaven just because they're Jews. There are some Christians that assume that all the promises of God are for every Jew, regardless of whether they ever believe on Jesus Christ or not. I grew up with an understanding that Jews were somehow different from everybody else, and that they had an automatic pass into heaven. Romans 9 will not let us think that way. The very reason Romans 9 exists is because Paul is saying that there are many, many Jews, and he is sorrowful, and he is full of anguish over this, but he says, my fellow kinsmen are lost. He says, my fellow kinsmen are accursed and cut off from Christ. Mount Hermon, even Jews need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Jews need to hear the message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God through the blood of a lamb. We saw in our last sermon series that God the Father loves his son. 
And because he loves his son, he's causing everything to center around the son. This is why salvation is only through the door called Jesus Christ. God wants everyone and everything to be centered on Christ. It would make no sense. It would undermine the very purpose of the universe for God to bring Jews to heaven apart from his son. And therefore, we should support missionaries who take the gospel to the modern nation of Israel. And we should support missionaries who take the gospel to Jewish communities around the world. We should support missionaries who take the gospel to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. Final implication, fourth and finally, the word of God always proves true. The word of God always proves true. That is the main issue here. It is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says. In other words, you can trust the promises of God of Romans 8. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, don't live in anxiety. Don't live in distress. Don't live in fear. What if I come to the last day and he fails me? No, God is faithful, Paul says. His word does not fail. He will keep his promise. And Paul has shown us that God's word is not failed by pointing us back to God's word itself. He pointed us to Old Testament scriptures and helped us see that even the Old Testament taught that it's not biological children of Abraham who have the promises of God. In other words, what Paul does in Romans 9 is he helps us to see that the problem was never with God's word. The problem was with our understanding of God's word. The problem was our interpretation. We thought all Israel meant ethnic Israel. He says, you didn't read it carefully enough. And he points us back. Friends, It wasn't that God's word was obscure. It wasn't that God's word was unclear. It was that we hadn't read it carefully enough. And Paul says, look at it again, and it'll make sense to you. Mount Hermon, whenever we encounter an issue with the word of God, know that the issue is not really with God's word. It's always with us. God's word is perfect. We're not. God's word is infallible. We're not. God's word is inerrant. But we're not. How arrogant it would be of us to stand over God's word and declare that something in the Bible is an error because we don't get it. It's the other way around. If the Bible is God's word, then it stands over us and it declares to us our errors. Our errors of thinking. Our errors of believing, not the other way around. And so I ask you, dear Christian, are you not glad that the word of God proves true? And are you not glad that he will keep every promise he's made to you? Let's end as we began. Imagine you come to the day of judgment. You stand before the great judge, Jesus Christ. The nations are gathered together. All your sins are revealed. Every evil thought, every evil word, every 
evil action is exposed. God's justice demands that you be eternally punished. Satan and his minions are in the corner crying out for you to be condemned to hell. You cry out, I'm a Christian. I've placed my trust in you, O Lord Jesus. Your gospel tells me that through your death, your resurrection, there is forgiveness for me. Hell cannot have me. My sins were paid for on the cross. O righteous Jesus, I am ready for heaven because I have trusted in your word. What will Jesus say? Well, here's what we know to be true from the unbreakable word of God. The devil will have his mouth shut as the wounds of Jesus reveal that justice has been satisfied. The pit of hell will be closed because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The door to heaven will swing wide open because all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And you as a Christian will be taken into paradise where you will experience the glory of God and the unmerited favor and love of the Lord forever. And it will all be grace and it will be grace upon grace. And as you live in this world of God's love forever, you will be grateful God's word proved true. You can count on it. Let us count on it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.